For as long as we have lived For as long as we have known Love has carried us You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Genesis Covenant Church in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. You can find out more about us at www.genesiscov.org. Enjoy the teaching in it together. Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, adulterous and sinful generation. That's, um, I'm sure you guys are like, wow, it's really glad I got out on this cold, snowy morning for this. Uh, really, though, I do hope there's something this morning that touches your heart, and I'd like to pray before we get started. God, give us understanding today. Help us to see. And please give us a desire for more of you. Amen. So the main question I want to look at is what will it profit a man if he gains the whole if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? Because I can lose my soul. And here's what I mean by that. When I lose my soul, I have lost touch with who I am and who I'm made to be. I feel disoriented, confused. The essence of who I am is away from home. There's a disconnection and a longing. I'm lost. Do you ever have that feeling that your soul just isn't at rest? I think we all find ourselves there sometimes, but we may not realize how we got lost. And for a while, we might not even realize we're lost at all. The verses Charlie just read can be pretty overwhelming. But what Jesus is essentially asking is, are you going to choose me? Is your desire for me? Will you be mindful of the things of God? That means God's interest, God's will, God's work. And although it's an ancient practice, mindfulness is having kind of a moment right now, from psychology to yoga, pop culture, And there are some wonderful principles of mindfulness, 
But for our purposes this morning, I think we just need to be aware of the basic idea of mindfulness, which is to be aware and awake, to be conscious to what is happening. And God is asking us, or Jesus is asking in this passage, that we be mindful of the things of God over the things of men. So in order to do that, we need to look at what are the things of God and what are the things of men or the things of this world. So here's an all-play question. And all plays are designed to hear the voice of the community versus just one person, and that's way better. So what are the things of men, or what are the things that the world values? Money, power, yep, absolutely. Success. Fame. Safety. Possessions, let me say. Yep. Productivity, absolutely. Beauty, perfection. Whoa. <laughs> security? False, false security. Gold what? Gold medals. <laughs> Winning, yes. So all that's true, and there's, I mean, we all know these things. Um, and when we look at what the world values and what's behind those values, it's usually in direct contrast to what God values. While the world values complexity and sophistication, God shows us beauty and simplicity. While the world wants us to fear not having enough and scarcity, God asks that we trust and have faith that he is enough. While the world wants me to look out for myself and what I need, God asks that we look to others' needs. So when you lay it out like that, it seems like, of course, we'll choose the things of God. But it's not always that easy. We live in a world, and especially a country, of distractions, consumerism, lust, fear, greed, where people seek power and image, success, their own safety above everything else. And that's why we need to look at the question, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? Because the obvious answer is, it won't. I don't think this was an all-play question. Jesus wanted us to be mindful of this. When I first looked at Peter in this passage, I thought, what is Peter doing that's so bad? Peter loved Jesus, and this is actually the first time that Jesus is telling his disciples he's going to suffer and be killed. If someone I love comes to me and says, I'm going to endure suffering and ultimately be murdered, my response is going to be, no, don't, don't say that. You don't have to do that. That's basically what Peter's doing. But in order to understand why Jesus says this, we need to look at the first time in Scripture that Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Matthew details the temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness. First, Satan tempts him with bread. Then he tempts Jesus to test God. And finally, Satan takes him to the top of a high mountain and shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says, all this can be yours if you worship me. He's offering Jesus the opportunity to gain the whole world. And that's when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Serve the things of God, not the things of this world. And this is where Peter gets off track and why Jesus rebukes him. Peter's thinking of his own interest 
above the things of God. There are places in our life where we follow the interests of the world, the things that we desire, and then we can find ourselves lost. Because our soul, the essence of who you are, is home in God. And if we aren't home in God, we're lost. So how do we end up there? I think there's a few reasons. One is we just don't understand the cost. So the question, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? To me, this is business 101. It's profit and loss. And as any business person knows, in order to make a good decision, you need to sit down and you need to look at what's the profit, what is there to gain, and what are the losses, the expenses, what's this going to cost me? We don't often plug our souls into a profit and loss statement, but I think for a minute we need to do that. So first, what does it look like to gain the whole world? We just talked about the things that the world values. Um, and for most people, the first thing that comes to mind when you talk about gaining the whole world is you'd have lots and lots of money. Maybe it's power, success, could be fame. Then there's the people that had all of these things. King Solomon had wisdom, wealth, fame, incredible power, and all the worldly pleasures you could want. Yet here's the guy who waxed poetic for much of Ecclesiastes about how futile it all was. He says, it was all vanity and striving after wind, and there's no profit under the sun. So we know where he stands on the issue. And that might seem a bit dramatic, but the point is, even in people who have apparently gained the whole world, there's still a desire for more. Because the things of this world don't truly satisfy. And although on some level we really we know this, there's still a temptation sometimes to think, if only I had more money in the bank, a bigger house, a better job, 100 million followers on Twitter. I don't know what, what it is for you, but there's always that something. It might be a good exercise to spend some time considering what are the things of this world worth to me? Why do I want them? And are they worth the price? Remember, though, this is a profit and loss statement. So in order to determine if it's worth it, we need to plug in the expenses. So let's look at our souls. What's the value of your soul? Charles Spurgeon said it beautifully. The soul is a thing worth 10,000 worlds. In fact, a thing which worlds on worlds, heaped together like sand upon the seashore, could not buy. It is more precious than if the ocean had each of its drops turned into a golden globe, for all that wealth could not buy a soul. Consider, the soul is made in the image of his maker. God made man, it is said, in his own image. The soul is an everlasting thing like God. God has gifted it with immortality, and hence it is precious. The soul is precious again, we know, by the price Christ paid for it. Not with silver and gold, but he redeemed it with his own flesh and blood. Ah, it must be precious if he gave his very heart to purchase it. Let that truth in. Your soul is the most precious thing to God. And that's true regardless of your thoughts on God or where you're at in your journey. 
God gave his heart for you. And maybe you've gained some things in this world. Maybe you have success or wealth or you're well-known. The problem comes when we try to gain these things at the expense of our soul. And that's why in the very next verse, Jesus asks, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And at some point, the world will demand that you answer that question. So on the one side, you have gaining the whole world, whatever you determine that's worth. And on the other side is your precious soul, worth more to God than even the life of his son. And this is why we don't usually plug our souls into a spreadsheet, because we know it's just not worth it. So why else does it happen? I think it often happens because we just don't see it. Our son CJ was born two months early, and our daughter Abby was two years old at the time. And I don't know if this is still the case, but 14 years ago at the NICU we were in, they were not big fans of toddlers. Um, they claimed it was the germ potential. I think the noise and destructive potential were probably equally good candidates. But for whatever reason, we had to really fight to get Abby in there to meet her new brother. So in the meantime, we tried to prepare as much as we could for what to expect. And if you've been in a NICU, you know it can be a little scary and overwhelming. So we started to tell her things like, there's tubes and wires, and there's TVs everywhere, but they don't play cartoons. And he's wearing stickers and Band-Aids and sometimes sunglasses. Um, there's lights and beepy things and... Oh yeah, he's mostly naked. So we thought we'd covered all of our bases, and finally the day came where she could come in and meet him. Charlie was carrying Abby. And when we got in there, our normally very talkative little girl was quiet for the longest time. Finally I said, what do you think, Abs? And she, without hesitation, said, he wants to get out of the box. The box, the isolette, we had neglected to tell her about that. We just didn't really see it. Initially, we'd seen it, but we'd kind of gotten used to it, adjusted to its presence, and started to look past it. And compared to everything else, it seemed pretty harmless. But here were the eyes of a child, immediately noticing it and saying, something needs to be done about this. And she's right, babies don't belong in boxes. But How often do we not see the box in our life? We may not see it because we're caught up in the details, the daily irritations of life. We may not see it because it's slow and gradual. We may not see it because we don't think it's a problem or we've just gotten used to it. Yeah, I saw the intubations and the IVs, the big scary things. I see the people who are embezzling money and abusing children. That's bad stuff. But I overlooked the box. I failed to notice how being busy had taken me away from being still with God. I missed how my desire to be certain and maintain control had eroded my dependence on God and my trust in God. I didn't see how much I valued my own safety 
to the point where it had become almost an idol to me. I've also failed to see where I am part of violent, unjust systems that exclude and oppress people. Systems that I am quite certain grieve the heart of God. Richard Rohr said, Christianity has far too easily called individual, private behaviors sins, while usually ignoring or even supporting structural and systemic evils. And often, we just don't see it. We aren't mindful of it. And then we wonder why we feel lost. There's another reason that we find ourselves lost, that I find myself lost. And this one's really hard to admit. But sometimes we ignore the things of God, and we choose the things of this world, because it's easier, it's more comfortable, more fun. We just want to. And why wouldn't we want to? The world does such a good job of enticing us. Come this way, follow this path, buy this stuff. And guess what? You can be happy, carefree, popular, running on a beach with glowing skin and brilliant white teeth. But the things of this world have a tendency to overpromise and underdeliver. Jesus, meanwhile, is telling it straight. He's talking about suffering, rejection, denial of self. He's a public relations nightmare. <laughs> but we think, like Adam and Eve in the garden, that we know better. We look at the things of the world and we think, we can handle it. We won't lose our soul. And the fruit on that tree looks so good. It's desirable. So rather than immediately telling those temptations to go away, to get behind us, we flirt with them a bit, engage them at times, maybe even embrace them for a season. There was a time that Charlie and I found ourselves in an environment that highly valued image, success, and money. And to be honest, we embraced that for a while. It was new and exciting, but we told ourselves we wouldn't change. It wouldn't affect who we were. And we didn't change right away. As it often happens, the changes were slow and gradual, almost imperceptible, at least to us. But after a couple of years, I found myself awake in the middle of the night, wondering who I was. I had worked so hard to craft a certain image to the world, and an image that I thought I wanted, but in the process, I had lost my soul. I found myself away from home, struggling with my true identity. And walking away from that environment was hard. It actually led me into a wilderness, but that wilderness ultimately led me back home. In the garden, Adam and Eve also had a sudden awareness that their intimate fellowship with God was broken. They were no longer at home. And if we pay attention to our souls, if we're aware, we can tell when we're want, we have wandered away and that we're no longer at home as well. We might feel ashamed or restless, exhausted or anxious. We find ourselves constantly seeking acceptance from something, someone, somewhere. And that's because we're homesick. 
The cost of following the world means our precious souls are not at home. In these verses, Jesus is asking, what are you going to follow? What is it that you desire? And if my desire is to follow him, Jesus asks that I choose God's will, God's interest, God's work over my own. Yeah, Jesus plainly states the cost of following him. It's a life of surrender, but it's worth it because our souls can only find peace in God. We are only home in God. Now, for some of you, the notion of home might be as difficult as the notion of God as a father or God as a mother. Home might be a place of conflict, pain, loss, a place that isn't safe. And if that's true of you, I'm going to ask that you rename that place. That isn't really home. It might be a house or a place you live, where you came from, but it's not home. Because home is a place where you are nurtured and accepted. Home is a place of restoration, comfort, inspiration, grace, and intimacy. It's a joyful place. Home is a place where you are wanted. Home is a place of nourishment, peace, and rest. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We need this reminder because we're tempted and we miss the mark sometimes. We aren't mindful of the things of God. And we try to satisfy our souls with the wrong things. You know, sometimes they aren't even wrong things. If we look back at Jesus in the wilderness, I think Satan had a very specific goal in tempting him. He wanted to interfere with God's plan, to stop Jesus from doing what was his to do and what only he could do. Do the things of the world ever hinder you from what God has for you to do? I know that happens to me. I get distracted or preoccupied, and sometimes by things that aren't bad things, but they serve the purpose of interfering with what God has for me to do. Think about Jesus' first temptation. He was tempted with bread. Now, normally that's only evil if you're doing a whole 30. (laughs) But it was more than that, and Jesus knew it was a temptation he needed to avoid. And that's something we need to be mindful of as well. We can become so engrossed with neutral things or even good things that we get sidetracked from the things of God. Exercise is something that I thought about. It's not a personal struggle, I can pridefully say. (laughs) But exercise is scientifically proven to be good for you. But yet I've seen it become a distraction for people. Maybe it's work or food, a hobby. All kinds of things can be a distraction. And at least for me, different seasons hold different challenges. What was fine for me to have in my life last year may not be fine this year or vice versa. But whether a thing is right or wrong, if it's distracting you from what God has you to do, it's a problem. 
If there's something in your life that keeps coming to mind today and you're thinking, that's not an issue because it's not a bad thing, maybe it's not an issue. But if it's something that keeps coming up, I'd encourage you to have an honest conversation with God about it. Just ask him if there's something you don't see. Several weeks ago, Steve introduced the season of Epiphany with the invitation from Jesus to come and see. See God, see ourselves, and see each other more clearly. This season of Lent also holds an invitation for us. It's the invitation to see and repent. It's the invitation to come home. Is there an area in your life where you aren't mindful of the things of God? Or maybe you're aware of the things of God, but you're choosing something else. Is something distracting you from what God has for you to do? If so, repent. Repent simply means to change your mind from the things of me and the things of this world to the things of God. And if you're homesick, change your direction. Come back home. The way to change your mind and to adjust your desires, find your way home, is not striving and increasing your efforts. It's not clenching your teeth and straightening your shoulders and renewed determination. Instead, it's a posture of surrender and being mindful and expectantly waiting as God seeks you. In Luke 19.10, Jesus said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Isn't that good news? Amen. Amen. That is the good news. That is the whole narrative of the Bible. God has been on a mission to seek and to save us, to save our precious souls made in the divine image. As we enter our 60 seconds of silence, I invite you simply to be mindful and wait. Come Holy Spirit, speak to us now.